Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Readout. And we begin tonight with major breaking news, a bombshell ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court in just the last hour states that Donald Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president and from appearing on the Republican primary ballot in that state. In a more than 200-page ruling, the court found that Trump is ineligible for the White House under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The court found that the district court was correct in its early ruling, calling the January 6th attack on the Capitol an insurrection, and that Trump, quote, engaged in that insurrection through his personal actions. The court noted, we do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. This frankly stunning and unprecedented decision could have major implications in the 2024 race in which Trump is currently the Republican frontrunner. The decision will likely be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which could decide the matter on a national level. And when a big news uh, item like this drops, we there's one person we want to talk to more than anybody else. So, of course, Rachel Maddow joins me now on the phone. <laughs> Rachel, we had a whole show planned, my friend, uh, and that is completely <laughs> upended. This is what we're talking about now. I am in front of festooned with papers in front of me, but I just want to listen to you react to what Colorado's Supreme Court has done. Yeah, Joy, first of all, thank you for having me on. I know it's very short notice, and we're all just trying to absorb this. Um, I mean— uh, listen, I, I think in the in the broad strokes, in terms of our democracy, there are very few magic wands. <laughs> there are there are very few sort of um, you know magic spells that you cast that um, make a make a complex and difficult problem go away. That just it just doesn't happen very often in our political system, and I think that we shouldn't be under any illusions um, about the the character and the partisan inclinations, among other. things things of, of this current Supreme Court as it is constituted. That said, yeah. it is not, it is, this is not a crazy thing for a democracy to do. This is, mm-hmm. um, this is, this is something that was a hallmark of post-war Germany uh, after World War II. This is something that happened to Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil quite recently. This is something that our own Congress did in 1868 after our own civil war, specifically to preclude anybody from holding office in this country who had engaged in insurrection against this country. And so it's, it's not unheard of, but it's, it would it would be an incredible wild card. 
It would indeed. And to your very point, um, you know, uh, there are 14 members who were expelled during uh, the Civil War for supporting the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, was written for the Confederacy. It was written because of that insurrection. And I think what was the most stunning to me, Rachel, I haven't gone through this, a very, very thick ruling. It's, it's a big stack of paper. But the part that I've gotten through, what, what I found the most stunning is that what this court has said is that the, the, the previous court, the lower court, was not not wrong in saying that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. Their only error was saying that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which, again, was to prevent insurrectionists from serving, didn't apply to presidents. They said, oh, no, we agree with the lower court. He did engage in insurrection, but Section 3 does, in fact, apply to presidents. I guess it was surprising that the lower court said that it didn't. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting, after that district court ruling, um, the, the Trump side appealed part of it, and the plaintiffs appeared the, appealed the other part of it. And so it was a you know, real question as to what the, what the Colorado Supreme Court was going to do here. But, I mean, let's keep in mind the scale of this. So this is about Colorado only. It will, you said it will likely be appealed to the Supreme Court. It will certainly be appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and then their ruling, um, I mean, depending on what they rule, they could just swat this down and, and, and make this go away. But if they engage with it in a more nuanced way, or if indeed they agree with the findings of the Colorado Supreme Court, then this will be uh, something that has national implications. And um, this, this, will, this will apply in, in, in many states. And so, uh, listen, I, I, I don't think this is the way that Donald Trump's political career ends, ultimately, because of what we know about this iteration of the United States Supreme Court. But mm -hmm. the factual findings about him having engaged in insurrection, as defined technically for the purposes of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says insurrectionists cannot hold office in this country, it's not that you can't run for office, it's that you cannot hold office in right. this country because you have broken your oath. That is a, it's, it's, it's not a flippant decision. They, fact find, they did fact-finding to arrive at that, and... It's it's gonna it, it's it's going to matter some way. I I don't believe it will be a magic wand that that ends his political career. But um, this is a substantive finding and a and a real surprise from the Colorado Supreme Court. Absolutely. Well, let's let's break that down into two pieces. Let's first talk about how how much it could expand, like how much this could metastasize for Donald Trump. The the, the worries over Colorado, right? This is not a, a swing state that he would likely win anyway. Whatever, but. There are other state courts that have already rejected similar lawsuits attempting to keep him off the ballot. And I will name them. Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. The plaintiffs challenging Trump's eligibility in Michigan filed an appeal to that state Supreme Court just on Monday. So there is a potential ripple effect here. And, you know, I wonder what you think about that and also what you think about it being this court. This court that doesn't seem to have much respect for precedent, but calls itself originalist, its majority does, its conservative majority does, and a court that has a member whose wife, <laughs> whose wife materially participated in the insurrection and who probably won't recuse himself. Clarence Thomas's wife, I mean. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if the Supreme Court were to affirm this ruling, 
he could be disqualified, not just in Colorado, but in but in multiple states. And so, like the stakes, the stakes couldn't be higher. Um, as you say, they define themselves as originalists. What does originalism means? It means it's a. I mean, my <laughs> layman's take on it is that it's a fairy tale. But <laughs> if you listen to the way that Fair. they talk about it, it's that there's no interpretation. Essentially, that all of all they are doing is applying the language of the Constitution as the people who wrote that language intended it in their own time. Again, I think it is kind of a fairy tale, but that's the way they talk about it themselves. In the case of the 14th Amendment, this was written in 1868 specifically to preclude people from holding office in the United States if they were pre- if they had engaged <laughs> in trying to overthrow the government of the United States or if Hello. they had previously been office holders who violated that oath. Um, and so it's, I mean, if you... I look at that as a person who doesn't agree with this originalism fantasy the, the legal philosophy, and I say, well, seems pretty clear to me. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you and I know, and every you know, every realistic observer of the Supreme Court knows um, that they're not they're not given to um, grand gestures in any direction other than a right wing direction. They are willing yeah. to do even very radical things. They're willing to take up cases where the fact, the purported facts of the case aren't real. <laughs> they're willing to take up cases <laughs> where they're supposedly governed by precedent and just decide that precedent doesn't apply anymore in this case because they have a new feeling. I mean, they're willing to do incredibly radical thing in the service of conservative policy aims. And I think it could be argued partisan aims of the Republican Party. They have not been willing to do anything brave in any decision other in any direction other than that. And so will the United States Supreme Court say this is what the this is what the authors of the 14th Amendment were talking about in 1868 when they put section 3 in there? I cannot imagine it. But um, you know, I, I, at this point, stranger things have happened, Joy. You know, we've it's lived through a lot, you and I. <laughs> stranger things have happened literally since, like, yesterday. Like, everything's strange every day. But, you know, I, I want to just hinge on one more thing. I, I don't want to make it a hostage situation, but I do love talking with you. Uh, the part about them being Republicans, because one of, to me, kind of the things that you can sort of predict about this Supreme Court is that they, that the Supreme Court majority, the conservative majority, is that they will hew to outcomes that the political, that the Republican political party would prefer. Yes. And I think you and I both know from, you know, whatever they say publicly, one of the outcomes that the Republican party would prefer is no more Trump is to rid themselves of this man because he has taken control of the party. He has taken control of their base and he has taken control of their minds. They're not allowed to use them anymore unless they use them for whatever it is that makes him feel good that day. In a sense, the Supreme Court Republican majority, if we want to call them that, has an opportunity to rid their preferred party of this person based on the thing that everyone understands was a threat to our democracy and the peaceful transfer of power. Can you foresee John Roberts and friends taking up that opportunity? I probably couldn't foresee Clarence Thomas doing it, but I don't know. Are there five of them who might? I, I honestly, I don't know. And this is actually one of those moments um, in journalism where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of criticism, and a lot of it deserved, um, for what we call access journalism, right, for people who really know their subjects, um, or for people who are, I think there's a, there's a lot of criticism that is less warranted for journalists who are really, really, like, deep earthworms in one particular beat. <laughs> but this is one of those moments when people who really know the Supreme Court, not just as lawyers or ex-lawyers, but people who know these 
these justices and who know the, the way these justices interact and who know these justices in terms of the way they think about politics and their legacy and ethics and all of those things. Journalism about the court um, and about this court and about these justices is about to get very, very hot <laughs> and very important. Those are going to be very, those people's phones are burning up right now. Um, I think that, that, that dynamic that you raise is a real one, Joy. And I do think the justices want us not to think of them as political actors, but I think we understand that they are. And I think they have politics um, that are in some ways quite discernible for some of them and some of the others. It's a little cryptic. But how do they feel about Donald Trump as the head of the Republican Party becomes a very, very hot question right now. I mean, I, I will just just raise one other one other issue, and I mentioned this before, but the idea of a healthy democracy Nevertheless, having some sort of disqualifying process, an adjudicated process by which some people and some parties even are prohibited from participating in democratic competition because their point, because what they've shown, because their track record or their platform is anti-democratic in nature, that's a thing. That happens all over the world. It happens in our own history. That's how we got the third, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. As I said, it happened in, in post-war Germany. One of the things that I've been researching recently is that these there were, there were you know post-war German political parties that wanted to bring Nazism or a version of that back. And the Germans set up a judicial system under Allied supervision that assessed whether or not they were anti-democratic parties. And if they were, they were disqualified. And it happened over and over and over again. It happened very recently in, in Brazil in terms of disqualifying Jair Bolsonaro from running again for a period of time. This is a thing that happens in healthy democracies. In a, in, in, in it, it isn't just that you're disqualified because somebody doesn't like you and your political opponents say so. It is an adjudicated fair process that is transparent and that can disqualify people or parties on the basis of real factual bases. And it's it feels a little bit foreign to us, but um, it's not foreign to democracy, and it's the reason the 14th Amendment has Section 3. Yeah, well, not too long ago, a coup felt foreign to us. And yeah. look where yeah. we are. <laughs> look where we are now. If one were to put together a fantasy team of who you'd want to talk to on a night like this, the first person on the list uh, would always be Rachel Maddow. Thank you. Thank you, my friend, for taking the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Joy. Thanks. Thank you. Joining me now, another member of that fantasy team, Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel. And we're just going to keep building the fantasy team here. Melissa Murray, professor of law at New York University, who joins me on the phone. Um, wonderful to have you both. Very good luck for me. Um, but I want to read to you, Andrew, I want to start with you and just read to you Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It says the following. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Is it as stunning to you as it is to me that this Supreme Court in Colorado has found that that isn't even a question, that Donald Trump did violate the words that I just read to you in the Constitution and that the only error in the district court was that they said it couldn't apply to him because he was president? Let me add to that, Joy, because um, as you had noted, this is a decision that is four to three. So it's a close decision. But when you look at what the three justices in the dissent were complaining about, they do not in any way 
challenge the findings that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and, as the majority said, engaged with the specific intent to engage in imminent unlawful action, the specific intent to engage in imminent unlawful action about the former president of the United States. There is no challenge by any of the seven justices to the facts. And so I think it's very useful to focus on the three in dissent and why they're dissenting, because I think it goes to your conversation with Rachel about what we might see in the Supreme Court. The reason you have three people in dissent um, is because of procedural issues involving was there enough discovery? Was there an, enough process being given to Donald Trump to be able to challenge those findings? Um, was it clear what the standard of proof should be? And the whole series of things that, that the courts look at in terms of deciding due process of law. That may very well be the battleground in the Supreme Court, not whether Donald Trump did this or not, because there is a factual finding and a hearing, but rather this procedural argument. And that's where you see the Colorado justices having split. Um, and I do think that is where we're going to see the battle in the Supreme Court focused on that particular difference between the four in majority and the three in dissent. That's a really interesting point, because, right, it was always a little bit odd to me that so many people were charged under the Insurrection Act, but Trump was not, right? That, that, that Jack Smith didn't go there, and that—but it seems that those substantive questions seem to be closed. And so I wonder— at, at what sort of what would be the pincers that anyone who wanted to overturn this ruling in the Supreme Court would have? Um, I'll, I'll let you start, Andrew, and then and then we'll go to Melissa on that same question. I mean, I, I'm trying to sort of foresee what a counter argument would be if it seems that both of the courts who have ruled on this case in Colorado, including the Colorado Supreme Court, agree that the ins the question of whether Donald Trump participated in and committed insurrection, that that's a closed question. Well, there's going to be nobody better than my colleague at NYU um, on constitutional issues. She's precisely who Rachel's talking about, about somebody yeah. who really knows the Supreme Court and can give you um, that analysis. I think what we're going to see from Donald Trump, un, uh, surprisingly, is a kitchen sink. I mean, he had the kitchen sink approach in the Colorado Supreme Court. He raised every single argument um, whether something that was serious or whether it was frivolous. I mean, there was a huge litany um, of arguments, all of which um, were swatted away by the majority. And as what you said, is a very lengthy, serious decision that we're still all going through. Um, and I suspect that, again, will be the approach. But there are, um, as I mentioned, there are serious issues to raise uh, on appeal. One is this due process issue that gives the Supreme Court sort of a procedural mechanism uh, to essentially not sort of split the baby. Yes, he can be on the ticket, but it's not because he didn't engage in insurrection. Right. Um, other issues involve whether he is technically considered an officer for the purposes of this provision. As you noted, that's an area where the district court ruled in favor of Donald Trump. Um, I was not surprised to see the Supreme Court in Colorado overruling that. I think they have the better of that argument, but I think we're going to see that revisited. 
Um, I think we're going to see the issue of whether it's self-executing, which is a form of the sort of procedural argument. And what do I mean by self-executing? There can be language in the Constitution, but you need um, Congress or a state legislature to provide a lot of granular detail about who is going to make the decision. What's the standard of proof? What kind of discovery? What kind of hearing is held? Um, there, There are all sorts of processes that are left very much unanswered. Um, And so you could imagine that being another battleground in the Supreme Court. And the one thing we know, Joy, while we're sitting here, is this will be decided by the Supreme Court. There's a stay in effect right now, but um, we've heard from the Trump team that they rightly will seek review. So the Supreme Court is now going to have two incredibly important Uh, Donald Trump decisions in front of it, the presidential immunity decision um, that they're waiting to get his papers uh, tomorrow um, and decide whether they're going to accept that appeal. And then they will be getting papers um, with respect to an appeal of the Colorado decision, where, of course, as you've mentioned, enormous ramifications for other states that may be doing the same thing. Indeed. Uh, let's go to Melissa Murray, former clerk to Sonia Sotomayor, Justice uh, Sotomayor. So, Melissa, let's go through this, because the, the, this is what the, uh, the ruling states. It says that the electors and, and Donald Trump sought the court's review of various rulings by the district court, and they affirmed some and they reversed some. Let me go to a couple that, I, that stood out to me. Section 3 encompasses the office of the presidency and someone who has taken an oath as president. On that port, on that point, the Colorado Supreme Court says that the district court committed reversible error. Another one, the district court did not err in concluding that the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, constituted an insurrection. The district court did not err in concluding that President Trump engaged in that insurrection through his personal actions, which we've been discussing. President Trump's speech inciting the crowd that breached the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, was not protected by the First Amendment. Those seem to be ripe issues for the Supreme Court to litigate. Um, How do you perceive this going, given the fact that these folks, the majority, claim to be originalists, and the, the Section 3 was written specifically, originally, to stop insurrection and violate, uh, and Trump apparently did so. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me tonight on the phone, Joy, and it's great to be here with Andrew. This is perhaps the most fun faculty meeting we've had in a while, and <laughs> this is a great night for constitutional law professors. I'm yes. salivating thinking about the new semester. Um, the Colorado Supreme Court wrote a very meticulous opinion. This is over 200 pages. They went through every argument in incredible detail, explaining themselves with really remarkable clarity. And I think they did that knowing that this is on a bullet train to the Supreme Court. And as you say, they agreed with many of the district court's findings below, particularly insofar as Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. He recruited and incited these followers to go to the Capitol to engage in an act of insurrection. And his speech was not protected under the First Amendment. Those are incredibly important findings. Where they differ from the district court is in this question about the substantive meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Again, Section 3 does not specifically mention that the president is one of the federal officers to whom it applies. But as you say, this was an amendment ratified in the wake of an American Civil War that was understood as an insurrection against the Union, and that any federal officer who had pledged to uphold the Constitution and then had joined the Confederacy was engaged in an act of insurrection. And that included everyone from the top of the ticket to 
the rank and file below. And so they came to the conclusion that the history, the text all supports the view that this applies to the president of the United States, even if the president of the United States is not specifically enumerated as a federal officer here. So this is going to the Supreme Court, as Andrew says. There are a number of jurisdictional avenues that the court can take to get out of this without deciding the substantive meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, I think one question here is whether or not the Colorado state courts even had jurisdiction to take this question up, and that would be something the court will attend to. The question of whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing or whether it requires some kind of congressional action, like a statute providing a cause of action, is also another issue that the court could decide this on. And then, of course, the due process issue, which Andrew just talked about. Um, So there are a number of off-ramps here. But if the Supreme Court takes up this substantive question, determines that the text of Section 3 makes clear that it applies to Donald Trump and that Donald Trump was indeed engaged in an insurrection on January 6th, this is going to set off a domino effect that literally will go throughout this country as more and more states line up to decide whether or not they will disqualify. And remember, election law is a creature of state law. The mm-hmm. states get to decide the procedures and the mechanisms for their own election, even federal elections. And so each state can come to its own conclusion. So if the court decides this in a way that goes against Donald Trump, we may find ourselves with a patchwork of ballots on election night in November 2024. And I will just remind our viewers that the other uh, states in which this has been litigated, uh, normally in Donald Trump's favor, at least up to now, are swing states. Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, the plaintiffs challenging Trump's eligibility in Michigan have already filed an appeal to that state's Supreme Court on Monday, um, just as uh, just for, for those of us who are not lawyers, lucky enough to, uh, to, like you said, be in those faculty meetings. Do these state courts, Supreme Courts, influence each other? Will this will this decision be influential potentially um, among the members of the Michigan Supreme Court? I would assume yes. Well, we're certainly looking at each other, like, you know, whether or not Michigan's law is the same as what we've seen in Colorado um, is a completely different question. But the fact that one court has taken the step, I think, is extremely important. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why the district court below here pulled back a little and said, you know, I, you know, there's nothing explicit in the text of the Constitution that applies this particular provision to the president is because it was a matter of first impression and a trial court judge in Colorado did not want to be the one to pull that lever. But now the state Supreme Court has other state Supreme Courts may decide in different ways. I will also note that in both Minnesota and Michigan, the decision not to disqualify Donald Trump was done on jurisdictional grounds, not on the merits of the question of whether or not um, he had violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment or whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applied. But there's a lot of room here. And you know, I think that's one of the things the court is going to be thinking about. Um, we've seen in other election cases, Bush v. Gore comes to mind, mm. that they can often be swayed, not necessarily by constitutional text, but the pragmatic demands of the moment. Um, you know, Justice O'Connor talked about you know the need for finality in that particular case. It may be in this case that the idea of a patchwork quilt of different ballots all across the United States on election night is something the U.S. Supreme Court cannot yeah. countenance. And so I think there are going to be a lot of different issues. Very, very quickly, before I go back to Andrew, can you foresee any... Uh, 
I, I cannot imagine Clarence Thomas being able to hear this case, I'm, to be honest with you. Just ethically well, you and morally. Him, because it's going to happen. He is not going to recuse himself in this case. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. He's not going to recuse himself in this case. Unbelievable. Uh, it, it is unbelievable. And I understand exactly why you know, there, there's clear evidence that Mrs. Thomas exchanged text messages with Mark Meadows during the course of this um, episode at the Capitol. But Clarence Thomas is not bound by any laws to refuse himself by any rules. The Supreme Court's quote unquote yeah. ethics code is a paper tiger. And this is going to be a decision where nine members of the Supreme Court are actually mm. going to be needed. So recusal is going to be very difficult here. Unbelievable. All right. Let me come back to you, Andrew. I just want to show video just for those, just to, just to keep it out of the memory hole. This is video um, from the day of the January 6th insurrection. These are some of the people who were charged under the Insurrection Act. Enrique Tarrio is, uh, of course, one of them. Elmer Stewart Rhodes is another. They met together. Here they are in a garage plotting the insurrection. Enrique Tarrio wasn't even in D.C. and got convicted under the Insurrection Act. Um, Donald Trump was not so charged. Do you think that if you're, Jack, if you're Jack Smith right now, former prosecutor Andrew Weissman, are you rethinking whether or not, now that Trump has been adjudicated to have participated in insurrection by not one but two Colorado courts, do you rethink whether he should face charges under the Insurrection Act after this? I, I don't think we're going to see that for a couple of reasons, regardless of whether you think he should have been charged with this initially at this point to add that charge will just delay the case. So I don't see that. But also, I think, will um, fuel the um, the 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 um, attacks on Jack Smith and the Biden administration of being political because they will say you did this solely so that he could not run as opposed to mm -hmm. for criminal purposes. In other words, you're tying it directly to the election, which isn't the reason for the, the case. It was, you know, I think Jack is looking at this very much like a criminal prosecutor. Um, and um, I think that was part of the initial reason also as to why it was charged the way it did. It avoided raising this incitement Brandenburg issue under the Supreme Court law about what language is enough to be incitement. It avoided that issue by not charging um, that particular incident as inciting the insurrection. Remember, he would have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, not by a preponderance, but by the criminal standard. So he sort of very smartly charged around a lot of legal issues to streamline the case and bring it to trial. Um, and it is important to know that at least so far, none of the um, uh, the decisions that we've been talking about in Colorado, the district court or now the Supreme Court in Colorado are saying that there's a flaw because this would have the only way this would have worked is if Donald Trump had been charged criminally with insurrection. So that that in other words, it's not the lack of a criminal prosecution that's leading the courts to say, no, this isn't sufficient. Um, and so I think for all those reasons, I don't think that we're going to see a superseding charge by Jack Smith on this count. And I think strategically that is the right move. 
And this concludes the faculty meeting uh, at NYU, <laughs> the, the NYU Law School faculty meeting. Andrew Weissman and uh, Melissa Murray, uh, you are free to go about the rest of your evening. Thank you both very, very much. Um, and we've got much more on tonight's bombshell breaking news out of the state of Colorado, where Trump is now, as of tonight, disqualified from the ballot. More when the readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. For more on the stunning breaking news tonight that the Colorado Supreme Court has disqualified Donald Trump from the ballot based on his participation in insurrection, Let's bring in MSNBC correspondent Vaughn Hilliard. Uh, Vaughn, give us a little bit of a background on how all of this came down uh, and on any reaction, which I'm assuming is infuriated uh, from the former president. Right, Joy. Actually, just as we were waiting to come back to air, I was listening. Donald Trump is currently speaking. He took the stage about 10 minutes ago in Waterloo, Iowa. Of course, the January 15th is the Iowa caucus day. And you cannot separate this from the political here because of the timeline that the U.S. Supreme Court, now that the Trump team has made clear they are going to appeal this decision, the Supreme Court is going to have to work on an expedited, expedited timeline. March 5th is the day that Colorado is holding its presidential preference primary. March 5th is Super Tuesday. When you're looking at how the delegates are going to break down here, it is important to determine if the Supreme Court were to rule against the former president in this appeal, that there is the reality that these other Republican candidates are very closely going to be weighing whether to get out of this race or not. March 5th in Colorado, they are a male-only voting state. So therefore, for 20 days before the election, that would be on February 14th, that is when Colorado will, the Secretary of State will be mailing out the ballots. January 5th on paper is the deadline for the Secretary of State to uh, send the ballots to be printed. That is where the, in this decision, the stay has been granted to the Trump team through January 4th. Right now, his name will appear on the ballot unless the Supreme Court comes and rules otherwise. But we are looking at a very truncated time for the Supreme Court to rule. Because when you are looking at this Republican primary, I was just down in West Palm Beach yesterday with some of Trump's top advisors, and they will, are, are saying March 19th is the day that they believe that they'll hit the delegate count to wrap up the nomination. But by March 5th, you're looking at one third of the delegates having been uh, designated on that day alone. And so uh, the reality here is that February 14th, if that's the day that those ballots are going to be mailed out, uh, that's just about 10 days before the South Carolina 
primary, there's a lot of layers that realize the political ramifications are, 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 uh, are tricky here. But, Joy, this is a, a lot of, uh, at stake here if the Supreme Court were, in fact, to rule against the former president. It is stunning indeed. Von Hilliard, thank you very much. All those dates, I have written them down uh, and we'll keep them in mind. Uh, Joining me now, thank you. Joining me now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. When I tell you we pulled the dream team to talk about this tonight, Michael, I am just going to let you talk. Your reaction to this stunning development in American history. Well, uh, the Constitution and our democracy have been called the most brilliant system devised for self-government in the history of the world. And, you know, maybe that does not turn out to be so wrong in the end. You know, democracy does heal itself. Let's go back into the history machine. Vaughn and you and Melissa have been talking, and the others have been, Andrew as well, about the fact that certainly the United States Supreme Court will consider this decision by Colorado to throw Trump off the presidential ballot. And I'd like to suggest two moments in history that should shed some light on that. 2000, you know, today, just this morning, was the memorial service for Sandra Day O'Connor, who served on the court in December 2000 when it considered the deadlock in Florida over Bush v. Gore and whether a, a recount should go ahead that would possibly allow Al Gore or George W. Bush to be elected president of the United States. A famous decision, Sandra O'Connor was in the majority, five to four said that the recount should be stopped. And the result was that George W. Bush was installed as president of the United States on the idea that he had won by 500, uh, slightly over 500 votes in the state of Florida. Since that time, many people have said that was a partisan vote. Uh, Many people think that that showed the Supreme Court at its partisan worst. Go back earlier in history to 1974, another case in which, just like 2000, the Supreme Court, as it should right now, said this is a matter that is so pressing, we're going to consider it almost immediately and give you a quick reading. So they did that, for instance, December of 2000, a month after the 2000 election. 1974, the case of Nixon versus the United States. The question was, should President Nixon, then in office, be required to give up his secret tapes? Well, Nixon was in California, then later in D.C. He said to his aides, we now know, good chance I'm going to win this one because nine justices on the Supreme Court, guess who appointed four of them? Blackman, Powell, Berger, and Rehnquist, those were all Nixon justices. Almost half the Supreme Court was a Nixon Supreme Court. Nixon thought he had a pretty good chance because he said, I appointed those people and they should be loyal. What happened? The ruling came down uh, late summer of 1974, and it was eight to zero unanimously. Uh, Three Nixon justices and the rest of them all voted that Nixon should have to give up his tapes, which, of course, led to his resignation. One other thing from history, there was one recusal. William Rehnquist, who was a justice at the time, said, I shouldn't vote because I have a connection to this case. And my connection is that I was appointed to this court by Richard Nixon after serving in his Justice Department. You see where I'm going. Here we are, 2023. Is this going to be a partisan vote? Or are they going to interpret the Fourth Fourteenth Amendment exactly? And also, will someone like Clarence Thomas, who's 
wife looks as if she was quite involved in the insurrection of uh, of 2021. Will he recuse? What a time to be alive. You see, this is why you need to have a historian friend or two, because uh, it's always helpful to have somebody who can lay it out with such great clarity and brilliance. Michael Beschloss, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, brilliant. What a thank night. you. Indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, we'll stay right there because it's still what a night. It's just going to keep going. There is so much more to talk about on this breaking news from Colorado. Donald Trump disqualified from the ballot. What will the Supreme Court do? What will Clarence Thomas do? And also, what could be both the political fallout and the fallout among the MAGA faithful? Much more when we come right back. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right. For more on this breaking news, Colorado throwing Donald Trump off the ballot, saying he is disqualified for having participated in insurrection. Let's bring in RN, former RNC chair and MSNBC political analyst Michael Steele and Democratic strategist and MSNBC contributor Fernand Amandi. Fernand Amandi, thank you both for being here. <clears throat> I'm going to go to you first, uh, Michael Steele, because we were talking about it in the break. I'm going to bring our off of the break conversation on online. The six Republican, the six conservatives on the Supreme Court, in many ways, are Republicans quite openly. They, 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 they go for Republican outcomes. Mm. How likely is it that they pull off the perfect crime? Republicans in the House, Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the state are too afraid to rid themselves of Donald Trump. They couldn't do it on impeachment. They were too scared to vote uh, to impeach him. They had two shots. They couldn't do it. This would be the perfect crime, wouldn't it? for John Roberts <laughs> to do the work that Mitch McConnell is too afraid to do. Will they do yeah, it? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I just don't think there's that level of calculation in this. Um, I, I think Justice Roberts, more than anything else, would, would very much try to temper that approach to, to this case when it gets to the court the next week or so. Um, it, it's just a matter of understanding the politics is something that he's tried very hard to keep outside the door. He's not been happy to the extent that Alito and others, Thomas included, have kind of brought that into uh, the court. So I think 
what'll be interesting what I'm looking at is going to be how the strict constructionists because you touched on this in the earlier segments how they actually apply strict constructionism mm. to the 14th amendment because we all mm-hmm. know why it was put in place and we know mm-hmm. who it applies to it's not this not some nebulous thing it was to cover those who tried to overthrow the government through um war at that time insurrection um and the civil war that seems pretty much kind of the playbook here right over overturning an election result uh preventing the uh the free exercise of that vote by the citizens um and and getting the congress um putting the congress in a perilous position um so i i, I think we, that's what i'm going to watch for and it'll be interesting to see what kind of knots the clarence thomases of the world uh, tie themselves into to get Donald Trump off of the hook that two uh, courts have now placed uh, the Supreme Court, uh, and particularly Donald Trump. Yeah, for, for, for sure. Uh, Fernand, how does this then impact the thinking of Democrats? Because Joe Biden's hold on the nomination and people's uh, disinterest in primarying him, jumping into the race, is really based on Donald Trump and, and this confidence that Democrats have that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump because of Donald Trump. What happens if Donald Trump can't get on the ballot in more than one swing state? Well, Joy, if that happens, I think it, it does open up questions on both sides, frankly, both for the Democrats and for the Republicans. I think at that point, you might even see some folks try and get back in this race. At that point, does Tim Scott, who suspended his campaign, say, well, maybe I'll give it a second look? Does someone like Ted Cruz try and launch a last-minute gallop for the nomination? It opens up all sorts of questions. But look, let me kind of put it into the context I see happening. I know we're in the holiday seasons, and I hate to be a Christmas Grinch just four days away, but spoiler alert, the Supreme Court is not going to invalidate Donald Trump from being on the ballot. This is going to be uh, the nominee for the Republican Party. And what I do think this decision does serve for the country. First, it uh, it's kind of a, an, a, an appeal from the gaslighting. All of us saw with our own eyes what happened in the run up to January 6th, then on January 6th and in the aftermath. Donald Trump led an insurrection, a court now without fear or favor has made that declaration clear. The good news about that, Joy, is what I think it does for 2024. In full relief and in full stark terms, it makes this election about what it needs to be and should be and must be. This election is not about the economy. It's not about immigration. It's not about reproductive rights. It's not about Ukraine or Israel. This election is about whether or not the American experiment in representative democracy and the republic continues or it ends and is turned into an authoritative fascist movement led by Donald Trump, who has said not once but twice that on day one, he intends to be a dictator. And that is a framing that I don't believe Donald Trump and the Republican Party can win. If it stays on those terms, if this Colorado Supreme Court decision does nothing else in history but makes the demarcation point for the election in 2024 to be defined between a choice between democracy and dictatorship, then it will have done the service to country and it will have served as a guardrail the fight to protect our democracy. I will note for our audience that many of the plaintiffs, the named plaintiffs in the suit are Republicans, one who worked for for the former governor. And uh, to Fernand's uh, very clear point, the question on the ballot is, can a twice adjudicated insurrectionist 
become the president of the United States? Pretty clear question. Michael Steele, Fernand Amandi, thank you both very much. And stay right there because we've got much more tonight on this breaking news from Colorado when the readout returns. Joining me now is Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI and an MSNBC national security analyst. You know, and Frank, I asked for you specifically because uh, a decision like this uh, is both a, a, an interesting <clears throat> legal and constitutional question and one that will go before the Supreme Court. But it's also a national security question because we know what MAGA is capable of. We know what his supporters are capable of. This kind of a decision, what should we be thinking about in terms of the national security impact? Yeah, there's no question, Joy. I'm, I'm glad you thought about this through the lens of national security, because that's how I'm viewing it as well. Look, we're already at quite a high risk level in this country, largely because of Hamas and, and Israel. We've seen DHS and FBI issue numerous bulletins. They recently did for the whole winter season regarding large public gatherings. And, and what is that about? Let's look at that, because there's an analogy here. It's about the, the fear that some lone actor or actors will be inspired by Hamas, Al-Qaeda, or ISIS regarding what's going on in the Middle East. Similarly, as you said, we have a proven track record with Donald Trump and his rhetoric inspiring violence, even fatal violence, even fatal to those who are executing the violence themselves, willing to die for Trump. And so the first thing that I, I think we're going to see happen is FBI and DHS is going to come alongside Colorado law enforcement, which, by the way, at the state level is very professional. Colorado Bureau of Investigation, Colorado State Patrol, they know what they're doing. But there's, they're going to need help with intelligence here. And so we're talking about the easy part of this would be to secure and raise security for the six uh, petitioners in this case, as you said, mm -hmm. some Republicans, some unaffiliated. They need to be secured, as does the Supreme Court of Colorado, more than ever before, probably more than they're, they've ever seen before at that state level. Then the intelligence challenge begins. As we see Trump inevitably ranting and raving for the next few weeks about this decision, the challenge for federal law enforcement is going to be to monitor legally where they can social media and interactions and chat rooms of known extremist groups to see who might be that lone actor or two or three. Very challenging because the groups themselves have been decimated by the January 6th prosecutions, right? Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters. It's the lone actor that you've got to get out in front of, and that's the hardest thing to do. Indeed. And I will note that the plaintiffs are named. Their names are public. I'm not going to read them. We don't want to put them in any further danger. But Donald Trump has a history of attacking specifically judges, prosecutors, anyone he feels aggrieved by. Their names are out. And obviously the judges three, you know, it was a it was a four three decision. The justice on the Supreme Court. Um, so this is means that they're all going to need more security. Indeed. And we don't have a gag order in this case. And I think it's unlikely we'll see one because this is going straight to the Supreme Court yeah. is, is my my impression. And they're unlikely to gag a candidate for president. Uh, Frank Figluzzi, thank you very much. On very short notice, really appreciate you being here. That is tonight's readout. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, 
bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.